Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us yet another man who is doing fantastic things in the multi-family space, the bulk of it in the great Lone Star state of Texas, where there's just incredible growth. This guy's got his hands in a lot of different projects, made tremendous progress in the last number of years. He is the co-founder of Granite Towers Equity Group. He is Mike Roeder. Mike, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks so much for having me on today, Roger. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. You you and me both. So Mike, before we get into the fun multifamily conversation, which is changing as we speak, interest rate stuff, market fluctuations and this and that, before we get into that, maybe give me a, a, a synopsis of where you hail from and how you wound up where you've wound up. You bet. So let's rewind Back to 2008, I got my feet wet in the real estate arena uh, with single family rental properties. House hacked my first house. We had a four bedroom house near campus. My girlfriend, she's now been my wife for almost 14 years. Uh, We had purchased that house. We rented out three of the four bedrooms to our buddies and really got hit by the real estate bug. We loved the cash flow. We loved, you know, that we were able to live there pretty much for free. And so we ended up buying a few more additional single family rental properties. And uh, we also ended up moving away from that market about about an hour away. Um, And it it turned into an issue actually, because I had my full-time gig down in Minneapolis. I'm from central Minnesota. And I was doing all the maintenance. I was doing all the leasing. I was doing the evictions on this handful of single family rental properties. So really I added a job to my plate and the last thing that I wanted to do when I got home from work was, you know, drive up to this small town an hour away and and get all these things done. Um, so that's where I realized that, yes, real estate was the avenue that I wanted to take to become financially free and to grow my passive income. But the single family rental game was not specifically what I wanted to focus on. So I needed to get educated. I needed to figure out a different path. Um, so we found a mentor down in Dallas, Fort Worth at that time. I ended up partnering up with my longtime friend who had been buying apartment complexes out on the West Coast and also in Minnesota. Um, he had a small portfolio, which was doing really well for him. And we ended up going into business together. We bought a 20 unit together. We bought an eight unit together. And those deals were doing really well. And so we decided to found our company about six years ago, uh, Granite Towers Equity Group and decided to start syndicating projects. So pooling limited partners or investors capital together to buy bigger, better projects in better markets. And so that led us to where we are today. We have about 2,500 units in our portfolio. Like you said, the bulk of it's down in Dallas, Fort Worth. And then we also focus on Nashville now as well. Got it. Fantastic synopsis. And it's like, usually what people do is they go on and on and on, which I'm happy for people to do that. Don't get me wrong. And sometimes it's too brief. Yours was like Goldilocks, man. It was right there, man. It was perfect. You're welcome. So a couple questions, Mike. Who was the mentor? Yep. So our mentor was Brad Sumrock. Um, he founded the Sumrock uh, ecosystem. 
It's, you know, a lot of multifamily investors that are a part of it. It's been a great tool for us. Yep. He's certainly well known. And then, so your partner had some apartments, interesting, you say on the West Coast in Minnesota. That's unusual. And so where were these apartments on the West Coast and what was the nature of those holdings? Yep. So on the West Coast, he lived in Washington. So they were, I would say about an hour north of Portland, Oregon. So right over the border. A couple small apartment complexes out there and then a handful of properties in Minnesota in the local town where we grew up. Um, You know, and looking back today, I truthfully, I wish I would have skipped the small multifamily arena because we had bought that eight unit, bought the 20 unit. They did great at first, but um, that market ended up turning on us. The, The college campus that it was next to ended up going downhill it affected our, our vacancy rates. Um, and, you know, if we would have really focused on larger projects in a better market, we would have done substantially better than those projects. What campus, uh, what college was it? That was St. Cloud State University. So it's in St. Cloud, Minnesota, very small town, uh, 150,000 people or so. I thought you were talking about the ones north of uh, Portland. No, Minnesota. Okay. Okay. All right. So you still own the ones in in, uh, Washington? Uh, He's sold all the ones in Washington. We've sold everything in Minnesota besides one 64 unit project. And we're pretty much solely, you know, based in Dallas, Fort Worth and Nashville now. You know, Minnesota was a great start for us, but it's, it's become less and less landlord friendly. You don't have the business growth and the population growth like Dallas, Fort Worth and Nashville do. Um, so we've really chosen markets where we have all the wins at our sales, you know, so we can we can create success with those projects. Boy, can't argue with that. How do you deal with uh, property management? That is a great question. So we outsource all of our property management at this point. Uh, so it's all third party management. We do a lot of due diligence on the companies that we hire before we bring them on board. Um, so our typical process is we'll fly into the market, say we're vetting a new market. We'll fly into the market. We'll spend about seven days uh, in the market interviewing every single management company that we've gotten a referral for. So usually about five to 10 management companies will drive their properties you know, that they current man- currently manage. We'll call all the referrals that they give us. We'll take a look at their financial statements. We'll go in and visit their headquarters, visit their staff, You know, interview the actual regional that we're going to be dealing with. Uh, so we do a lot of due diligence up front and we've been able to find a couple of really good, solid property management companies to work with that way. Boy, that's impressive. Super smart. I don't think, I think a lot of people don't do that level of due diligence. That That is my gut. And, uh, you know, I've now done over 300 of these podcasts. That's, that's my take. That's impressive. So I guess the question is with, you know, being concentrated in, in Dallas, Fort Worth, the first question is how many property management companies do you have across your properties in that market specifically? Yep. So Dallas Fort Worth, we have two management companies that manage for us in that market. And then in Nashville, we have one. Okay. And so do you have two in, in Dallas Fort Worth because there's a G, it makes sense geographic distribution of where the properties are, or is it more just a patchwork of, you know, for whatever reason, you know, what, what determines which property goes to which property management company out of the two? That's a great question. So today we're using one property management company in Dallas-Fort Worth for all acquisitions moving forward. Um, there was a period in time where we used another management company. They still do a solid job, but, 
you know, not as good of a job that that this uh, other management company does for us. So it's just been a shift in our preference over time. Okay, so one of them is standing out as a better partner to use, more aligned, and inevitably lots of details there. That's exactly right. But Mike, we have nothing but time. So what what are the details? <laughs> Yep. So great question. Um, you know, first off, uh, the regional with the management company that we work with now uh, is absolutely phenomenal. And team is everything for us. So the on-site manager and the regional that's working for you and assisting, you know, with implementing your business plan at the property level, it's really going to dictate the success. Sure, you need to underwrite conservatively. You need to buy in a good location. But if you don't have good team members, you know, running that property, it is very easy for the property to slip. So, um, you know, one of the management companies that we used to utilize, and we still have them on a couple of our assets, they have a very small team. We're not necessarily happy with the regional. Um, they do an okay job, but, you know, okay is not good enough in this industry. Um, and they don't have anyone to replace that person with. So that's been a little bit tough to swallow. Whereas the other management company, you know, they have a significant amount of regionals. They all do a fantastic job. Um, you know, also things like accounting, you know, that's a, a big ticket item where it needs to be efficient and they need to do a really good job. And we've found a couple management companies that, you know, are very poor, you know, with their accounting systems and making payments to vendors and, you know, all of those details. And that's extremely important to us as well. Unbelievable. This, this podcast is kind of turning into a, uh, you know, kind of a, a blue book for multifamily in, investing. And you, you've learned a lot in a short period of time. That, that is very interesting. The, the company that you are going to continue moving forward with, are they based in Dallas-Fort Worth? And, and how many units do they have in that market? And, you know, what's the size of their company? That's a great question. So they have about 30,000 units. So they're a very large firm. Uh, they're actually based out of Nashville, but they, they have units in Dallas, Fort Worth as well. And, uh, you know, they do very well with their accounting. They do very well with marketing. Uh, they have a great team, great communication, great organization, you know, all different aspects of a management company that, that we look for. Mm is the reason that you guys have expanded into Nashville partly because that's where they are and they've got boots on the ground there or was it apart from that? It was apart from that. So we actually had a third partner that had vetted out Nashville. He actually spent about a month on the road, you know, driving a, a bunch of markets, you know, in the Midwest and on the East Coast and the Southeast. And he landed on Nashville as being by far his favorite market. Um, and so he had vetted it. He had built out the relationships. He came to us and said, Hey guys, you know, I really like this market. And we had known him for about a decade. And we decided to, to jump in together and start chasing some deals in that market. And, you know, currently we own three assets uh, in the Nashville market and, you know, growing as we speak. So he drove to a number of markets and then and, and kind of landed on Nashville. What other markets came close and why did Nashville prevail as the kind of the beacon on the hill? Yep. So you had visited uh, Charlotte, Raleigh, Atlanta, you know, a few different markets in Tennessee. And Nashville really stood out, you know, first off, the growth has just been phenomenal. You know, a lot of people moving there, a lot, a lot of high paying jobs in that market, a lot of businesses moving there. It's also a huge medical uh, company hub as well. And so we really like that about that specific market um, when we started digging into the details. I see. In terms of asset class, 
Are you guys, what vintage is, is most of the stuff you're buying? So the bulk of our properties are B-class assets. Um, we do own one A-class and then a handful of C-class assets. Right now, we're essentially chasing uh, you know, the bulk of B-class assets as well. And there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, A-class, um, when you do have an economic downturn, they can get hit a little bit harder. You know, a lot of times your vacancy will go up. You know, you'll have a lot of concessions. Um, the people that are living at those properties might move down to B-class properties so they can afford the rents. And then C-class on the other end of the spectrum, you know, a lot of times you see the delinquency creep up um, because they aren't able to afford their rent. You know, maybe they get laid off. Um, whereas B-class tends to be a little bit more insulated. Now, one thing that we've adjusted significantly is where we're buying in these submarkets. We want to make sure that the one mile median household income is at least about $50,000 or higher. That's really our minimum. And you know, with the cost of living going up substantially over the last couple of years because of inflation, the lower demographic tenant base is you know, having a little bit tougher time paying their bills. And so you're seeing delinquency creep up and vacancy creep up on some of those C-class assets. So B-class is really our bread and butter. Hmm. So describe to me what B-class means, because it's one of those terms that there's a little bit of a, a, a range of what that means. You know, so what, what does that mean to you, Mike, exactly? Yep. So I would say it's, it is a gray area, um, but B-class to me is an asset that's, you know, fairly well kept and, you know, is maybe built in the early 80s to maybe the late 90s. Um, so we really take a look at the demographics. We take a look at the vintage of the property. We take a look at the submarket. And all of that factors into what class of asset it is. So it is a gray area for sure, Roger. Okay. What do you think prices now, you know, compared to a year ago in DFW and or uh, Nashville? That's a great question. So we've seen prices decrease anywhere from about 10 to 20% um, in both markets. Now, there is still a pretty big gap in between what most sellers are wanting for their property and what buyers are willing to pay for it because of where interest rates have gone. Um, so for us, you know, when we're bidding on projects, we actually just bid on a project last week and we bid on the same project a year ago. Um, so let me give an example here. We bid 39.15 million a year ago and we were second in line. Someone put it under contract for just over 40 million. They weren't able to raise the equity and the property fell out of contract. They're just coming back onto market and they're hoping to get about $32 million. So they've taken a significant haircut. You know, we think we have a pretty good shot at that, but that's re really tells you what's happened in the industry because of where interest rates have gone. Now, you know, fast forward, you know, another year or two from now, if interest rates do come down, I do think that, you know, the cap rates will compress again, money will come flooding back into the market, but we don't know when that's going to happen. Is it going to happen 12 months from now? Is it going to take 36 months? You know, your guess is as good as mine. So we're really setting ourselves up for a little bit longer term hold uh, projects just to make sure that we can weather any economic downturn and any, you know, interest rate uh, level if they, they keep where they're at right now or if they run up a little bit. Is the property that uh, got reduced to 32, is that in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth? That one's actually in Nashville. Okay, got it. Uh, and when was that built? Uh, that was built in the late 70s. Late 70s. Okay. So could that be a, a would you say B minus? I would say that's a B minus product for sure. It's in a very good area. A um, little bit of deferred maintenance, which we're not, you know, afraid of. 
a little bit older build. And again, we're not opposed to C-class or A-class properties as long as we can underwrite them very conservatively. But, you know, I would say about 80% of our projects are in that B-class arena. What role do you play Granite Towers in rehab? And maybe what, what I'm really driving at is, does the property management company, did they handle the rehab pretty much full service A to Z? where you know you just have to manage the asset as, as part of the overall process or are they third partying out contractors like what does that look like yeah that's a great question so we have an in-house asset manager her name's Dawn uh, she lives in Fort Worth and she oversees our capex projects um, so she's you know involved with the contractors she's lining up the bids she's visiting the properties typically once every week. Um, and so that's the person that really oversees all of our CapEx implementation. Now, Dan and myself, the owners of Granite Towers Equity Group, we have a weekly CapEx call where we're going through all the CapEx bids and just making sure that everything's on track. Uh, but she's the liaison in between the contractors and, and the work being done. So you don't use the property managers for, for the rehabs? We do not. Um, there are some projects. So say, you know, we have minor renovations on the interior units or it's just, you know, a quick turn. You know, that's something that the management company would handle. But when we step into a new project and we have $10,000 per unit to stick into that asset, you know, maybe 8,000 of it's for interior units and the rest is for exterior. Um, that's something that we're handling in-house. And, and do you do that, Mike, because it's, it's uh, less expensive, you have more control than using the property management company? You know, why don't you just let them? Because I would imagine they have contacts at a minimum or maybe even infrastructure internally to do that. Why do you handle it the way you do? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you use the property management team, a lot of times they're going to charge a construction management fee, you know, maybe 5%, maybe 10%. So you're going to be a little bit more efficient with cost. Um, but control is huge to us. And, you know, just making sure that the projects are happening very quickly and that they're getting getting done right. Um, you know, rewinding back to when we got started in the industry, we did have the management companies overseeing a lot of our CapEx spends. And it just seemed like everything moved at a much slower pace. It was more expensive. And so it's worked really, really well for us to bring everything in house. Yeah. Interesting. Not, not so, yeah, I, I, I get it. So you guys have figured out a lot of things pretty quickly. Um, good for you. Probably didn't feel like you were learning them quickly, but from my perspective, you were. In terms of, um, and this is kind of a, I probably shouldn't even ask it because I know that this is a moving target and it's a case to case, but what the heck, I'll ask it anyway. What are typical cash on cash returns on these properties first couple of years? Yep. So our with our projections, uh, we typically have a five-year projection when we buy a property. And our average cash on cash right now, you know, with interest rates um, going where they went, we're, at, we're sitting at about five to five and a half percent cash on cash return. Now that ramps up. So when you first take over a property, obviously you have a lot, a pretty big loss to lease. So you're losing some of your income because your leases aren't up to market rates. You know, you might be dealing with some vacancy. You got to turn the units. Um, you got to get those units, you know, rented at market rate. Um, so usually, you know, the first year you might see somewhere in between that two to 4% cash on cash, and then it'll ramp up over time. Got it. So for an average over the hold, perform it out at this point, five, five and a half. Correct. You're an, an honest and uh, realistic conservative guy, I can tell already. 
approximately how many investors do you guys have? Yeah. So our average project, I would say we bring on 100 to 140 investors. Um, we have a lot of repeat investors on our projects, but that's that's typical for, for any deal that we do. Uh, 100 per project? Correct. We're, we're typically raising in between 10 to $20 million per project. And I would say our average investor invests about 100 to $125,000. Now, we've had projects where we've had you know solo investors come in with millions, but our typical syndication, it will have in between 100 to 140 investors. In, if, if in those rare situations where somebody you know, strokes a check for millions, is this a, just an Uber high net worth person or, or have you ever taken institutional money or what, what, what were those circumstances? That's a great question. So we've never taken institutional money. Uh, it's all been, you know, from individuals that we've built relationships with over time. Um, and those couple circumstances where we had an individual, you know, write a larger check and take the whole equity chunk. Um, they had sold their business. They did really well with it. They had a large portion of equity that they wanted to place and, you know, they felt comfortable with us. Um, for one investor, we actually placed the capital in Minnesota, 86 unit project, held that for about 13 months, um, got about a 55% return. And then we funneled those funds to a project down in Texas, um, in Tyler, Texas, and placed the funds there for that gentleman. Do you guys have a, um, this is kind of neither here nor there. And I just really only ask out of curiosity. I don't know why, but you guys have a physical office you go to, or are you guys working out of your homes? All virtual from our homes. Do you envision for the next couple of years uh, staying in in Dallas, Fort Worth, Nashville, or do you have your eyes on other markets as well? You know, I I believe over the next couple of years we'll stay in those two markets. Um, there's enough deal flow, especially in Dallas, Fort Worth, to keep us supported in what we're wanting to do for acquisitions. Nashville is a little bit light. That's the one problem in that market is there's not a lot of deals that trade, um, so it's a little bit tougher to find projects now. We have vetted out other markets. You know, we spent a significant amount of time in Phoenix, spent a significant amount of time in Charlotte, um, also Kansas City. So there's other markets that are appealing to us, but you know, at this point in time, I don't see us expanding for at least a couple of more years. And is and is that because and, and I'm, I'm probably just having you repeat what you just said, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is that because you just said, "Hey, uh, there's there's enough meat on the bone in Dallas Fort Worth. There's enough opportunity here. We have boots in the ground." Is it that, or do you deem it to be a better quote unquote market right now than Phoenix or KC or what have you? Is it That's a great question. Ways? Not necessarily a better market. Um, it's more so been we've learned from experience. So when we got into this industry, we bought properties kind of all over the map: Western Wisconsin, Minnesota, New Mexico, Texas. Bought a deal in Alabama, and uh, we found out that it's very hard to you know manage that many management companies and that many locations. You obviously want to get on site on a regular basis, so you're flying all over the map. Whereas if you have a couple of markets and you're more concentrated, it's easier to asset manage. It takes less of your time when you're flying into these markets, and truthfully, it's more enjoyable as well. For for all those reasons, exactly. <laughs> less <laughs> less headache, right? I mean. That's exactly right. Yeah. Wow. And I would, uh, you know, from from an investor perspective, I, I I would argue less risk and as a result, potentially better returns for all the same reasons. Exactly. You get the economies of scale. You know, we have a couple of properties that are right across the street from one another. And, you know, say you need to pull someone from one of your other properties, you have that capability, which is, you know, absolutely phenomenal. Whereas if you're in a 
you know, solo market, you have one property in that market, it's very hard to do something like that. Got it. Oh, sometimes common sense, uncommon goes, goes a long way. And how have you handled, you know, over the last five years, how have you handled debt? That's a great question. So we've made a large adjustment. So, you know, 2022, especially at the start of 2022, we were using uh, bridge financing, you know, the bulk of people out there were. Now we had rate caps that we had put into place, um, typically three year, you know, one to 2% strikes. So we, we were able to mitigate a little bit of the risk, but you know, looking back, um, you know, I wish we would have placed long-term fixed rate debt. And that's all we're doing today. On, I think on our last six projects, we've done fixed debt. And it just allows you to weather the downturn so much easier. Um, and, and that's what we're all about these days. Have you had to, as a result of this, as terms have come to maturity, have you had to reduce or, uh, you know, stop distributions, you know, with uh, higher debt? That's a great question. So we do have a couple of projects out of our 17 projects that we have had to stop distributions because of the higher interest rate environment. Um, now, I can say that we've never done a capital call. There's a lot of investors in the marketplace that have placed these short term you know, loans where they have a rate cap, but interest rates have risen on them two to three percent. And so it's eating up all the cash flow. Uh, where they're needing to do capital calls. So basically going back to their investors saying, Hey, we need you to pony up another, you know, 20 grand or 50 grand or what have you. So that way we can get through this. What would you say? Well, uh, okay. Before I go to this, um, had you ever seriously considered, uh, getting into another asset class? We have. Um, so we're actually in process of heavily exploring, uh, the triple net lease space. Um, we have a gentleman uh, that we've worked with on several transactions that's very, very experienced with triple net. Um, he's bought dozens and dozens of them over the years. Um, so that's an asset class that we're exploring. We've also taken a look at self-storage. Um, haven't dove into it deep, but I like that asset class as well. Uh, on the triple net space, what do you like about it? Yep. Great question. So consistent cash flow is huge. Um, you know, if you buy into a property that you know, has a tenant um, that's corporately backed, um, preferably, you know, that's on the stock exchange where they have a large, large presence throughout the United States. It's pretty unlikely um, that they're going to go out of business. And so a lot of times you can have that tenant in there for, you know, five to 10 years. Um, and so you can have consistent cash flow there, regardless of what happens with the economy. So I love that. Um, obviously, it's, it's very easy to manage. It's triple net. So really, you're collecting the check. And, you know, making sure that the tenant is in place, you know, paying their bills. You're not taking care of the maintenance of the property and items like that. So I think it's a great asset class. I do think that, you know, apartments um, have a little bit more potential when it comes to appreciation, but it's a great way to diversify, in my opinion. What What is the pricing looking like in the triple net world? Because I know certainly till a year ago and I haven't, I've just heard about it in the last, in conversation, literally like in the last 24 hours. I mean, that's how recent this is, but, you know, certainly up until then for me, you know, in my mind, I've written it off as just, it's almost a, a, a bond proxy where, yeah, sure, you've got Starbucks or you've got whoever, but you're basically going to make, you know, 5% on your money. And, and also, yeah, pretty much. So what's the what's the prices looking like now? That's a great question. So cap rates in the triple net lease space, you know, you're probably in that five and a half to six percent 
um, cap, cap rate range. Now it depends on the submarket. It depends on what type of property you're stepping into and what type of tenant, you know, is there. If you buy a Starbucks, that's going to be a lot different than buying a, a smaller strip mall. But I would say, you know, if you can pick up a triple net lease property where it's close to the lease uh, expiration coming up, a lot of times you can renegotiate and you can build a significant amount of value. But it's like finding a needle in the haystack. Same with multifamily. It's very tough to find projects that really make sense for investors these days. So, you know, we're looking at getting involved in the triple net lease space, but it's going to be, you know, tough to find projects that qualify for what we're looking for. Yeah. And there still is, you know, despite like just so many conflicting uh, data points in today's market with the economy and and interest rate fluctuations, et cetera, cetera, there's still a ton of money on the sidelines. There's a ton of dry powder waiting to pounce on anything from innumerable sources. Well, I I guess uh, the last question, Mike, and this has been just such a good conversation. The last question is, you know, what would you say are key lessons that you've learned? Key lessons are over the years, um, you know, first off, fire fast, um, especially with management companies. I think that's been, you know, one of the mistakes that, you know, looking back, I wish I would have changed. Um, You know, we saw some red flags. We tried to coach them. We tried to work with them for too long. And so if you're really seeing red flags and it's not working, you know, get that person out of there, get that management team out of there and get someone in, you know, that can really do a great job. So that's been a learning lesson. You know, again, going back to the short-term debt, you know, personally, I don't think we'll ever do another short-term loan unless we're extremely confident in the ability of the property. Um, Put a little bit longer-term debt on your properties so that way you can weather any economic downturn, you know, that comes your way. Um, So those have been two big learning lessons for us. I got it. Well, listen, Mike, again, I am... uh Impressed isn't the right word. I am impressed, but but pleased to 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 talk to a guy that's so forthright and uh, so so honest. I I appreciate that. How would one uh, contact you to find out more about what you're doing? Ask you any questions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Great question. So if you go to our website, granitetowersequitygroup.com, there's a contact us page there. You can fill in your information, and we'll reach out to you. We have a couple free goodies as well. We'll send a, a free passive investment tracker that we put together. It's a really nice tool if you do any passive investing. And then on our website, we have a free ebook. It's called The Four Steps to Successful Passive Investing. And it's a short read, but it gives you some great tools to really vet the property and the team and the location of any assets that you're looking to passively invest in. I see. Well, Mike, it's been so great getting to know you and and uh, I hope to be able to circle back with you at maybe the next 9, 12, 15 months, what have you, and see see what you're doing at that point and compare notes and regroup. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Roger. It's been a blast. Yep, I, I agree. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing our relationship. Sounds great. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs>